You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Evan Asano, founder and CEO of Media Kicks. Media Kicks is one of the earliest and most successful influencer marketing agencies, having worked with some of the world's top YouTube, Instagram, and other social creators on campaigns for Nordstrom, Blue Apron, David Yurman, Hallmark, and more. Evan, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. So how did you find your way into the digital space? I moved to LA about 10 years ago um, and had been in biotech and wanted to move into something more entrepreneurial. I always thought digital media was a good fit because... If you're entrepreneurial, it's very easy and cheap to start a business in digital media. Originally, I was kind of experimenting with a friend early in sort of the Facebook era about building apps for Facebook. And uh, that was in 2008 when the economy kind of hit the skids. Then went about looking for a job. I actually got hired by MySpace at one point right after getting the offer, put a hiring freeze on. So it never came to fruition. But I then connected and applied for a job and got a position at Berman Braun, which was an early innovator in fusing digital media and kind of uh, traditional Hollywood entertainment. It was an amazing experience. Just in a year, just learned everything about digital media. Towards the end of the year, a friend of mine was at one of the first YouTube networks for Vision 3. It was a position open there. I thought YouTube was going to the moon. thought it would be a cool experience to go work for a startup in the YouTube space. And so joined Revision 3 and was an amazing experience. This is in 2010 before YouTube was top of mind for brands. Um, and I actually was working on the branded deals. It was a hard sell to brands because um, they didn't understand the opportunity. They didn't understand why they should be there. Um, the opportunities were small. We did work with some bigger shows, but a lot of the shows just weren't getting the views. What people think, you know, in the hundreds of thousands that people are accustomed to now. But it was an amazing experience also to be there early on. Maker Studio had just gotten started. You know, there was a handful, like two or three other networks. Next thing, networks ran out of money. It was bought by Google. And it was really early on in the space and a cool time to be there. And as the year wrapped up, um, I started to see the opportunity with working with influencers and brands and launched Media Kicks in 2011. So how has the MCN space or the online video space evolved since your time at Revision 3? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Revision 3 launched as a network, I think, in 2007. They did everything. I wouldn't say they did everything wrong, but they figured out what wasn't going to work in a lot of cases, not to any fault of their own. The initial idea they had was that they were going to foster, foster shows and talent and have them be live off of YouTube. So there was an app you could watch Revision 3 content on. There was a site, you know, revision3.com that had all the shows. When talent or shows signed to the network would deliver a show, they encoded it to, you know, 
however many different formats and did their own revision three video player. And, you know, we're expecting or anticipating audiences to watch it on revision3.com. What became very clear later on is that Maker Studio tried the same type of thing. The advantage for the network is huge because if you have uh, audiences go to a destination site and sell premium CPMs on that, you know, pre-roll inventory, and you don't have to do a 50-50 rep share with YouTube. The CPMs on YouTube are horrendous. You know, I think YouTube sells them between you know, whatever, five and ten dollars or something. You know, the rep share of the creator works out to be like a dollar fifty, you know, that CPM. If you have your own site with premium audience and premium content, you can sell those for a thirty to forty dollar CPM. So the opportunity theoretically is incredible. The problem is, is what became apparent is nobody wanted to really move off YouTube. They wanted all their content on YouTube. They wanted to find all their shows and all their other creators. And they wanted YouTube to be kind of the discovery engine. Mm-hmm. Also, the other thing that Revision Three focused on early on that wasn't successful either is they took a very Hollywood approach to content discovery or content creation, which is that they would own the IP, the content. They would pick out ideas of what they thought would work, like the food show. We'd find somebody, you know, a host for the food show, and then we'd go create that. We had an unboxing show, food show, and then God knows how many others. None of them did well, basically. What became clear later on is that YouTube in itself was its own content discovery engine. The traditional Hollywood model of creating content of what you think your audience will like and then running it is not what works on YouTube. YouTube really requires... Personality-driven, tens of thousands of people creating content. The best creators, you know, get surfaced and grow on their own, essentially. And the model of Revision Three at the time was completely the opposite. Um, they did sign, and the other thing that became apparent in terms of what were successful for MCNs was to sign as many channels as possible to a network, basically to capitalize on the fact that you don't know who's going to be successful. So if you sign ten thousand channels then, you know, 100 of those will, will grow to be big channels. Uh, Revision 3's model was the opposite, which was to find the successful shows, sign them to the network, and then get out deals for them. Um, and that limited the growth of the network, basically. So in 2011, 2010, 2011, the company was doing well financially in terms of driving, you know, really successful in driving branded deals. Um, but they weren't successful in figuring out the growth model for and as you pointed out, the thinking has changed significantly today. A lot of people experimented with moving audience off the YouTube platform and found that it's hard not only to do that, but to keep them there, right? The inertia of YouTube and the search discoverability is very challenging. And then, of course, the thinking about big aggregation models and the scale play, there was a time and a place for that. And we seem to have moved past it and much more of a focus on a vertical approach and opening up multiple revenue streams and, and supporting creators across multiple platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's in, it's incredible to see how, how much it, it's evolved and it continues to evolve. And social outside of YouTube when I was there in 2011 wasn't of any interest at all, basically. Now social, there's you know Facebook star, video stars, there's Facebook live video stars, there's Instagram stars, there's Instagram video, and everything in between. And the new, I think the more uh, proactive networks are, you know, trying to incorporate that into their model as well. But at the time, it was just YouTube that was on. So you had a lot of experience, first at Berman Braun, and then, of course, at Revision 3, working with brands, helping them understand the opportunity and the impact of digital and leveraging influencers. So was that kind of what fueled the inspiration behind Media Kicks? 
Yeah, I think the inspiration behind Media Kicks was I saw how well uh, Revision 3 was doing financially. Like the numbers, you know, the revenue numbers were, were, were good at Revision 3. It just seemed like this was a very good opportunity for brands. I was amazed when we would talk with brand partners, how low of a budget they would allocate. Um, I mean, at the time, you know, a big brand might come in and allocate, you know, they would try to allocate a 10 or 15K budget, but, you know, we had a, a minimum. And it was amazing to see that it was really just a curiosity and it wasn't something that brands took seriously. And it felt like that was going to change really quickly and really soon. It didn't feel like YouTube was going away. It felt like YouTube was just going to grow and continue to grow. And I was amazed at how good the content and the advertising was and how effective it was. When you work with a YouTube influencer with scale, you get you know a producer, an editor, a videographer, a production team, you know, creative, you know, a writer, all for the cost of just the sponsorship and distribution. You know, to do that in traditional advertising, you need you know, three agencies and a media agency and a media buyer to do the same type of thing. And I was just amazed that it was all encompassed in one single partner to do all that. And it really felt like the opportunity would grow to be much more significant. And so started media takes to, to do that. And it clearly has, right? I mean, I, today, influencer marketing is a watchword among brands, but also among their media agencies, social agencies. We've seen MCNs, of course, and traditional talent agencies like the CAAs and UTAs of the world getting involved. So in an increasingly crowded space, how do you stand out? Uh, it's a great question. You know, it's something we talk about all the time internally and, and with brand partners. So, you know, I think our track record is one thing that really sets us apart. We were one of the first companies in the space to launch. I don't know of any others. We launched in, in about 2011. In the last two years, it's, you know, there have been dozens of new companies that do something very similar to what we do. Um, so that's something we emphasize. I think it's a very nuanced space. I think it's something where partner relationships are very important. And we know and navigate that really well. One other important aspect is we're not a network. And so disadvantages and advantages that come to that. Disadvantages are that we don't have exclusives with partners, basically. Um, the advantages are that we can work with any partner across any network, you know, any management company, any, manage any manager or independent influencer. And there are a lot that are outside of networks. And a lot of the networks will purport that not to be the case. But in reality, there's a lot of influencers outside of networks. And we don't have obligations to sell that talent, basically. So we can work with anybody who best fits the brand. And what we pitch to clients is that we go out and find the influencers, irrespective of network affiliation, who are going to do the best job for a brand. We also spend a lot of time and money and effort on research. So we have a huge database, tens of thousands of influencers. We track branded sponsorships with the only company that we know of that actually tracks and looks at the branded content that influencers do. So when we work with a new brand and we figure out what they're looking for, we don't necessarily propose the biggest influencers. We look back and find the influencers who created the best branded content because that's a very strong indication of the types of content they'll create for other brands. And there are big, great, amazing influencers who create terrible branded content and vice versa. There are influencers who aren't as big, aren't as popular, aren't as trending that create incredible branded content. We're really looking to find the best fit, not only on audience, audience engagement, targeting, but also the influencers that can really create exceptional video uh, branded content as well. That must help you screen for potential competition, but conflicts of interest as well. Yeah. I mean, we did a, uh, 
a study last year, and it's the only one that we know to have happened, but we looked at the top 300 channels in YouTube. And for the first six months of 2015, we looked at every single video that they published, which was over 6,000 videos, and found all the sponsored videos that were done by the top 300 channels for the first six months of the year, and then broke down every one of those sponsorships by category and by brand, and then looked at those individual videos. And it was a huge amount of data. We're going to do another one for 2016, but we're waiting for the year to wrap up to get to get all the data. We don't know of anybody that's ever tried or done anything similar to that. So for people who are listening who want to read those reports, how they find them? Yeah, so we publish a lot on our blog, which is mediakicks.com slash blog. You can subscribe to the blog as well. You can follow us on social and we also have you know, white papers on uh, influencer marketing. So we have a how-to guide and a CMO's guide. CMO's guide is 15 or 20 pages of trends and insights in the space. And then all throughout the blog, basically, we publish um, infographics, how-to guides, case studies, brand analysis. We're one of the most read resources online for influencer marketing. So clearly your differentiator is your experience, of course, a curated approach and a high service level for both the influencers and, and the production partners, as well as the brands that you work with. But there's also a number of influencer marketing platforms in the space, right? Technology solutions that look to aggregate long-tail, mid-tail influencers and match them with brands for opportunities. What is your perception of the difference between agencies and more of a platform approach? Yeah, I mean, I think there's room for both, like without a doubt. And I think there's there are different opportunities and different brands that work for, you know, are looking to use either of those. There's a little bit of overlap and we do bump into partners that are platforms sometimes and vice versa, but it's a different set of needs and a different set of clients that are looking for each one. We work best with strategic partners that want real insight, they want real experience, they want real strategy or creativity behind what they're doing. And in some cases, you know, we work with partners that are spending seven-figure budgets every year. They're looking for a partner that can really execute that well. You know, I think influencer marketing agencies are going to take a space not dissimilar to social media agencies and media agencies and the world of agencies because it's a very nuanced type of uh, media buy. And you need a lot of expertise and understanding about how to do it well. Anybody can do it. It's about doing it well. In the same way anybody can go out and buy TV ads or billboard ads. It's about doing it well. It's about understanding the metrics and KPIs and understanding what success can really look like for a brand. The platforms we find that there's a lot of partners that want to just get reach at a relatively low cost. You know, on Instagram, I think it's probably a little more popular because it's very easy you know there's it's much more transactional than it is like creative but youtube gets into much more nuanced type content and to just execute a single youtube video can be dozens of emails basically and it's not something that runs itself very well to the platform if you want it done well or if you want it done with you know popular influencers uh, a lot of the popular influencers aren't on the platforms because um, the deals are more complicated or they have a management that just isn't interested in putting on a lot of moving parts when you have an MCN or an agent or a manager involved. And of course, if you're doing high-level production or creative work, the back and forth and the oversight that you bring to the process is important. Yeah, these are really high-touch campaigns. The other thing about it is there's a lot of kind of nuanced selling, like even nuanced selling in terms of getting the influencer on board or finding the right influencers, you know, and then working through and really creating the best types of content. The best analogy I have for it is that there will never be a platform in Hollywood that studios can broker deals with uh, top actors. 
if you want extras for a movie, there may be a platform that allows you to get a thousand extras for 20 bucks each for a movie. If you want to work with you know, top actors, they'll never be on the platform for the movies. That's a good analogy. So some of the biggest news in this space recently is the Google acquisition of FameBit. And what do you think that that signals in terms of Google's interest and activity in this space? I think it's really good for the, the industry as a whole because it signals that partner as big as Google is taking influencer marketing very seriously. And Google understands that there are very big budgets and there's a very big and growing opportunity with influencer marketing. So as a whole for the industry, I think it's good because I think we're going to see more of that. I think you know, big partners like Google or media agencies or agencies are and are taking influencer marketing very seriously because you know, we've seen it become not insignificant parts of brand budgets and very big brands are now starting to allocate dedicated resources, carving out parts of their budget, you know, the digital spend every year directly to influencer marketing. So that part of it's really good. You know, in terms of what it means for Google, I'm speculating that Google wants to funnel a lot of deals through FinBit basically. So Google has great relationships with brands. They spend huge bucks with them and they can use it either as an upsell or leverage, you know, to express their expertise to brands that they're good at influencer marketing because I think that's becoming increasingly important. You know, CMOs across the country with all these brands are asking, like, how do we figure out the influencer space? How do we do this well? Who do we execute with? And, you know, Google's acquisition is kind of a statement, I think, to those brand partners that they're serious about it and they're serious about you know, figuring out ways to, to help their partners work with it. It sounds like, you know, you view it as a complement to Google's strength in search, Google's strength in display ads, etc. Certainly, they saw all this activity happening on and around their platform. And to many, it, it seems like they want to, you know, get a piece of that action. Yeah, I mean, I think they're buying expertise. I don't totally agree that the programmatic aspect of Favit can scale much more than small partners, basically. I think that with medium to large size partners... I don't think that it's an easy thing to put on to a programmatic buy. I think, you know, everybody wants that to be the case. Everybody wants it to be easy. It's not an easy business. It's very nuanced, very, very high touch. And influencers don't want another platform that they have to log into, another messaging center. They just, it's just not, they don't want that. And bigger tier influencers also don't want 15% cut off of, you know, their fees just to go to, to a system that, deal on the payment. The payment system isn't broken in influencer marketing. Like scaling influencer marketing is very challenging, but I'm not sure that platforms are going to be the ultimate solution for it. So what does the future hold for media kicks? Yeah, so we are doing what we've always continued to do and growing with brands, growing our exposure to brands, uh, growing the platforms that we work with. This year, we were one of the first companies to work on Facebook Live. So we've done a number of brand sponsorships on Facebook Live. Um, it's worked really well. You know, we haven't seen too many other brands work in the space. Uh, and we pride ourselves in doing a lot of things first and bringing those opportunities to our brands and our clients. So um, that's something we're going to do and we're going to continue to do. And uh, and we're just growing kind of in all areas. We're growing on the marketing side. We're growing on the account side and the team side. We've been working with more global partners, which has been amazing. So we have clients in China. We have clients in Europe. And there's just been fantastic growth across the board. So we're just planning for more of that. On the other side of the spectrum, what is the hardest part of starting a business and being an entrepreneur? Uh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a few things that aren't hard about doing it. Um, I'm in a unique position where you know I'd 
bootstrap the business and I don't have a partner. So I don't have founding partners in the business. So sole founder with bootstrapping the business, I would say it was excruciatingly difficult. Probably one of the most difficult things I've ever done. You know, I think taking on investors can make some things easy and can make other things very difficult. You know, and I've debated throughout the lifetime of Media Kicks uh, at several different points about whether we should take on investors. When I first launched the company, I don't think anybody thought it was an investable opportunity. I didn't talk with a lot of investors. I just wanted to get the thing up and running. I did talk with a couple the first year, and nobody really took it seriously as a growth opportunity or investable opportunity. So it kind of turned me off a bit from working with investors and really pursue it actively. After that point, um, being a sole founder and anybody who's working on entrepreneurship, you understand that actually raising money is a significant amount of time. And you know, teams that have three founding partners or four founding partners, one of those partners might spend their entire time raising money, basically. And as the company grew, I knew I didn't have the bandwidth to do that. So I just focused and I was worried that if I spent time raising money, that I'd take my eye off the ball of what was working and you know, the company would stall. And so I made a decision early on really to not do it until I absolutely had the bandwidth. Um, and now we're at a point that I don't know that it's necessary. We're not adverse or precluding any, any discussions with it, but we're in a good position, you know, with growth and all that. And we're not actively pursuing it either. In terms of like what I could recommend to people who are considering it, I think it's important for people to understand that it's challenging and difficult. It's not an easy path. It's, it's a, an incredibly compelling, incredibly rewarding path, but it's, it's a challenging path. I think the best thing that you could probably do to prepare for it or to go as you're going through it is to learn and read as much as possible. So one of the things that's most helped me is just reading you know, as much as I can, whether it's biographies of entrepreneurs or you know, books on how to personal development, listening to podcasts, uh, watch a lot of courses on Udemy, any of that stuff. It's all out there. Everything that you'll encounter, every issue you'll encounter is out there. If you know and you have insight into those things before you encounter them, you're in a much better position. Any specific resources to recommend? Books that have helped you along the way, pieces of advice, podcasts, yeah, courses, so etc.? I would say one resource that's really incredible is the website Quora. There's experts on every different field writing incredible content. You know, in a lot of cases, there might be a question on what are the 10 most important things to do, you know, or learn as an entrepreneur. And you have founders of top companies or, you know, Facebook founders writing in on those answers. And there's dozens of incredible answers. That website is an endless resource for that type of information. And I would highly recommend it to anybody. You know, there have been some great podcasts that I've listened to. I mean, I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss. He's not always focused on entrepreneur stuff, but I think he exposes you to a lot of different thought leaders in different spaces of areas of people that you can explore and learn more from that aren't necessarily entrepreneurship, but can provide a lot of ancillary information. And then Udemy has been another incredible resource. So everything from sales courses on Udemy to, um, you know, classes actually on entrepreneurship and productivity. Um, they're 20 bucks. I mean, you literally, you can't go wrong. So those have been incredible too. So yeah, those are, those are great resources. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the online video space, what do you see? About online video or about influencers? Sure, we can get specific influence marketing since that's the world you know best. Yeah, so I think, you know, what's amazing about YouTube is that it continues to grow. So 
you know, a couple of years ago, videos that were getting, you know, 100,000 views or a couple hundred thousand views of video were, were big partners and big partners to work with. Now we're seeing partners and influencers out there that are getting millions of views of video and that just keeps growing. Um, you know, Casey Neistat, before he stopped vlogging, was getting three to four million views per day per video, which is insane. I mean, his audience alone is incredible. There's PewDiePie, obviously, but there's dozens and dozens of people like this that are just showing incredible, incredible growth. YouTube has broadened incredibly in terms of the categories. There's amazing science and learning channels now. There's always, you know, beauty, there's vlogging channels, there's everything out there. And I think as that continues to grow, it's just going to appeal to wider and broader audience segments. And so we're just going to see more of that. And that's, you know, part of a bigger trend that's taking down TV. I read some crazy metrics a couple of weeks ago on MTV. They had one and a half million daily viewers last year, and they're down to a half million daily viewers this year. Wow. So, Let alone what it was in the 80s and 90s. I mean, it must have been at five or 10 million daily viewers in, you know, early 2000s, 90s and stuff like that. And this is an institution that, you know, I kind of grew up on, like, friends did. I didn't watch a lot of MTV, but it was like everybody watched MTV. It was just what you did. That's now Snapchat and that's YouTube and that's Instagram. But what's interesting about it, I think, is that it's not just the growth of Snapchat and YouTube, but it's the broader appeal of Snapchat and YouTube because of the high quality of content, the high quality of the creators on it, and the range and diversity of content. If YouTube was just a bunch of kids making videos, it wouldn't grow to the extent that it is now. But the diversity of the types of content, the production value of this content now, the crazy range of the types of people participating in it is what's fueling it. It's not being fueled just because it exists. It's being fueled because there's amazing, amazing, great content out there that you can't get on TV and traditional media, basically. So that's going to continue to grow. You know, I get asked a lot of times, I think it's a fad. Without a doubt, it's a fad, I think, to start an influencer marketing company. But influencer marketing is not a fad. It's not going away um, because the underlying trends of what's driving it aren't going to change. People are going to Snapchat and they're not going to go back. People are going to YouTube and they're not going to go back to TV. That fundamental shift is there. It's getting very hard for marketers, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. If you want to reach, you know, the younger segment of audience, you bought an ad at MTV. That's all you needed to do. Now there's nobody watching MTV. So it's very hard for marketers to reach those audiences through traditional means. Ad blocking is becoming a huge thing. That's blocking a huge other you know, way brands have of targeting audiences the only alternative is basically those social channels now it doesn't mean influencer marketing is the only alternative you know you can buy ads through facebook you can buy ads through instagram you can buy ads through snapchat and that's going to continue to grow but uh, influencer marketing is a big part of ways of targeting millennials in a very authentic and a very effective way and without a doubt that that will continue growing and the opportunity is estimated to be in the low billions and we really expect it to continue to just keep growing into the billions basically so there's that big shift that's happening kind of in traditional media there's going to be a big shift in traditional ad dollars because if the audience is on tv people won't spend on tv the ad dollars are going to go where the audiences are um, those are big trends i think in the space i've been blown away by snapchat and how amazing a platform for stories and for storytelling it is I think that's going to filter out to broader audiences and continue to grow. And then I think, you know, 
know, Facebook has done some amazing stuff with video in the last two years, both with uh, Facebook native video, um, Facebook Live's been incredible with the reach and engagement on it. So I think that'll just continue to grow as well. Um, yeah, I'm just really curious to see what, what other areas will come up. So as viewership becomes more fragmented, we have all these platforms, we have so many influencers. Will that continue or are we going to see consolidation eventually? I think it'll continue. You know, I think what gets interesting is whether there's going to be more apps out there, like musically, like if they're going to be, if, if it's going to expand, you know, if it's, or if it's going to remain, you know, those primary platforms like Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. And then I guess you could argue for streaming apps like Twitch also, or whether there's going to be more kind of expansion, more evolution with those types of platforms. So that's sort of the debate is whether there's going to be five new Musical.ly's or whether you know, it's going to cap out at that. Or even if Musical.ly is going to continue to grow. Yeah. You know, I don't know that it's the format that appears in the same way that Vine was a very, what allowed for fast growth in Vine early on was a very unique and strict format. And that's what hampered it and killed it in the end, basically. And that may, may or may not be the case with Musical.ly. I was going to ask you about that because you, know, you, you touched on the ones that you feel have the staying power. But I think it's because they've learned to evolve, right? You know, Facebook started off as a social network for sharing information with your, your college friends. And that evolved in the photo sharing became a huge component of it and then events and things like that. Same thing with Instagram. It started off just posting pictures and now sports video and, you know, there's going to be live components. Yeah, which is huge. And it looks a lot like Snapchat, right? So, so if something like Vine fails to keep up and offer, you know, additional formats and lengths and also the ability to do live streaming, you know, Twitter had an opportunity with Periscope and, and then Twitter native video. They just never seem to execute on that effectively. Yeah, I think, you know, Vine is probably a really good example for the industry of not evolving. Snapchat took what Vine could have been and admitted what it is, what Snapchat is basically. Vine had the potential to do stories before Snapchat did. I, I'm almost positive that, you know, Snapchat just borrowed the Vine clips and created that in the stories. And I was amazed that Vine never evolved. Like when I first used Vine, I recorded a clip and I posted it and I was like, but I want to record another clip, you know, like in another and another. And it just, you didn't have that ability. They looked at each clip as sort of a standalone piece of content the same way that it was like a YouTube video. And I think it's a really good cautionary tale for the industry about the need and necessity for constantly evolving and disrupting yourself. And I think Facebook's actually done that incredibly well. This is a company that's you know one of the largest companies in the world, and they're not afraid to go out and experiment and evolve platforms. You know, like you said, with Instagram, they have stories on Instagram now, they're doing Instagram Live. You know, you could argue internally that, you know, there's a whole team on Facebook Live that could be saying, we have Facebook Live. Why is anybody doing Instagram Live? And that may, there may have been that fight. But what's amazing about Mark Zuckerberg and leadership there is that uh, they don't let that ever inhibit their ability to evolve and continue to offer, you know, new product evolution for what they do. And it's amazing to see them do that. You know, I've heard that with WhatsApp. They're looking at offering similar story features and, you know, they just continue to push the evolution with each of their major properties. So really impressive to see that. If you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? As I mentioned earlier, starting an influencer marketing company right now feels like a fad. I think it would be very hard to get started and get traction and offer something that's distinguished from everybody else. One of the most recent companies that started in this space 
raise $9 million, I think, in the first round. And I think it really requires something like that to get success in this space. And that certainly doesn't even guarantee it, basically. So I don't think that influencer space is the area to really go after. You know, we've seen some kind of cool ideas pop up. There's, you know, a company Jake Paul started called uh, Team 10. Jake Paul is a really popular, he's a popular Vine influencer. It's one of the brothers, Logan Paul, who's you know, a top video influencer now. He was originally on Vine, but obviously he stopped publishing on Vine. And Team 10 basically is sort of a mini network that aggregates social influencers on Instagram, Snapchat, and kind of co-promotes and cross-publishes them. I think they're doing some really cool creative stuff there. You know, in terms of what, you know, a company could do, I think, you know, there's some really incredible and some amazing opportunities with Snapchat. And I don't know the model for what a company would look like there, but I think that's something that brands are going to be very eager to figure out. And most brands have no idea what to do there, basically, and how to do it. And I think there's going to be a whole ecosystem of companies that evolve to really fill that need, but it's not necessarily totally clear what that company would or could look like. But I think, you know, companies in those categories uh, on the video and those particular platforms are areas that I think are really interesting. And you already mentioned the Media Kicks blog, but where can people find out more about you and more about Media Kicks? Yeah. So uh, my social handle on everything, on Snapchat and Twitter and I guess really Snapchat and Twitter. Well, my blog also is just Evan, E-V-A-N, Asano, A-S-A-N-O.com, or you know, Evan Asano on the channels on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. You know, as I mentioned, you can sign up for a newsletter on our blog. You can follow us on any social channel. We post all our content. So those are great ways to follow us or to follow me. Well, Evan, this has been super fun. Really appreciate you sharing your perspective and background in the video space, early, early days, and then all the way coming to today and and building an influencer marketing agency, one of the best in class in the space and all the work that you do with brands. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.